0: Hello there, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. This is your weekly dose of regulatory affairs with MLEX Market Insight. My name is James Paniki, I'm MLEX's Asia Pacific senior editor. Today we return to an MLEX favourite, Remedies. Now the backdrop is that Swedish conglomerate Acer Abloy wants to buy the hardware and home improvement division of Spectrum brands. Spectrum Brands, of course, is the U.S. diversified company that manufactures home appliances such as Remington, Black & Decker and others. So far, so good. Then, last year, the U.S. Department of Justice sued to block the deal, saying that it would harm competition and raise prices. And that is also clear enough. Next up, Assur offered to divest parts of its own operation, confident that the competition problems identified by the DOJ would then be swept away. Now, a divestiture offer is nothing unusual. We've talked about structural remedies a gazillion times on this very podcast, but here's where it gets interesting. The companies took the divestiture straight to the courts, and the tactic was to effectively sidestep what's seen as the DOJ's hard line to remedies under the Biden administration. And it may all come down to the burden of proof and a ruling last year by a US district judge by the name of Carl Nichols. Serafina Smith covers mergers and acquisitions for MLEX from New York, New York, and she joins me now to talk us through all of this. Uh, Firstly, Serafina, what do we need to know about this lawsuit?
1: So the DOJ is suing Asa Abloy, which is a Swedish manufacturer over its proposed acquisition of the Hardware and Home Improvement Division of Spectrum Brands. And the DOJ is alleging that the merger could result in increased prices for Smart Locks and premium door hardware. And what's interesting about this case is that the DOJ filed a complaint to block the deal in September. And in December, ASSA Abloy announced that it would divest two of its divisions, Mtech and Smart Residential, which are two of its brands that manufacture smart locks and um, premium door locking mechanisms, which is, of course, the DOJ's alleged overlap in this complaint.
0: Right. Now, we get to this point and you use the expression in your article, litigating the fix. What does that mean?
1: Litigating the fix has to do with litigating a remedy. So a remedy being like a divestiture in this case, specifically remedies that are proposed by the parties in a merger and they're either rejected by agencies or they were never even brought to the agencies during the traditional pre-merger review process. And under the Biden administration, both the FTC and the DOJ have taken a really critical stance on remedies in general. Jonathan Cantor, the head of the DOJ's antitrust division, has said that divestitures should be the exception, not the rule, for example. So there's this feeling among parties that while the agencies are taking this hard line stance on mergers and remedies that they might actually be better off bringing their fix, so to speak, to the courts, where they might have a possibly sympathetic judge that might look at their deal and they might be able to get their deal through that way rather than through the agencies who have essentially won't even come to the table to negotiate. And additionally, the agencies have had a string of losses in court. Um, The DOJ lost three big cases. The FTC just lost another one. So there's this feeling that maybe litigation is an easier path to go.
0: And so what happens uh, when the parties bring a fix to the court how does it how does it work
1: Well, that's where this question of shifting the burden of proof comes in that I wrote about in my article. And there's no established precedent on this from an appeals court, which means that there have been some differing opinions in D.C. at the district court level. In previous cases like Aetna, Humana, and the Cisco U.S. Foods merger, um, the judges in those cases said that first it's up to the parties to prove um, what's called a presumption under the Clayton Act, meaning a likelihood that the deal will increase consolidation in an industry or have some anti-competitive effects. After that, the burden of proof would shift to the defendants to prove that what they're proposing as a remedy, such as a divestiture like the one proposed in this case, would alleviate some of those concerns. It can get a bit confusing, though, because always the ultimate burden of persuasion still rests with the government.
0: Now, there was an interesting opinion by Judge Nichols in the United Health change healthcare merger process uh, last year, right? How does that uh, opinion change things, in your view?
1: So, in that decision, Judge Nichols basically stepped away from the precedent and offered a differing opinion. Um, in that case, uh, Nichols departed from the precedent from the Aetna and the Cisco cases and said basically... I'll look at everything at once it doesn't make sense and it uses a lot of the court's resources to first look at the original deal without the proposed remedy and then switch the remedy and then switch back so in his opinion he essentially said that he would rather look at it as a whole which is how it would be implemented in the real world right because they are going to go through with the divestiture so he thought that maybe looking at the deal first without the divestiture to determine if it's anti-competitive doesn't make a whole lot of sense
0: Okay, so returning to the Asarabdloy case which you've uh, looked into, what's going on with the burden of proof? How is
1: that issue playing out? Yeah, so there's some question of whether Judge Amy Berman Jackson in that case will approach Um, the Asa Abwe divestiture following the Aetna and the Cisco case law or if she's gonna go with Nichols's approach and and that opinion was from last September Um, so it's pretty recent and the DOJ has said of course in their pretrial brief that she should consider the original deal without without the fix and then shift the burden to the defendants and the parties have said that shifting the burden onto them is dangerous because it's the government's burden to prove a merger And so that's where these two amicus briefs come in. Um, We have one that was filed by the American Antitrust Institute and um, the former Obama administration attorney general, and another from a group of antitrust law experts. And these amicus briefs are trying to persuade Jackson to follow the previous precedent from Aetna and Cisco rather than the new way from Nichols' opinion. Since there's been this uptick in litigating the fix recently, given the agency's stance on remedies, for organizations like the American Antitrust Institute, who generally support rigorous um, enforcement of the antitrust laws, there's some concern that parties are skirting the agencies and the traditional pre-merger notification process under the um, Hart-Scott-Rodino Act. So the DOJ under that act usually has a lengthy period to examine the merger and investigate um, after it issues a second request. And, and so some of these parties are worried that If the agencies aren't being notified about these remedies and they're kind of going to litigation and said that it will kind of – the DOJ won't be able to conduct a thorough investigation and it will kind of harm their ability to effectively enforce the Clayton Act.
0: And Serafina, given all of this background with Judges Nichols' concerns on the litigating the fix uh, side of things – what are the next steps in the Assur case?
1: So right now the parties are coming to an agreement on the alleged uh, product market. There's been a joint status report on that that they've pushed back a few times, but now we're expecting that to be filed on February 20th, and then we'll see um, whether they can agree on the product market. And what Judge Jackson determines here with the burden of proof will kind of shape how a potential trial would look if this does proceed to a trial in court. If the burden of proof does switch onto the defendants, the trial will probably see a lot of evidence about the remedy, um, especially from the defense. And if she does the opposite, and the DOJ will essentially have to prove both things at once, that the original merger was anti-competitive and that the the fix that they've proposed is not enough. They also have some concerns that it was the parties that chose the divestiture buyer and not the DOJ through a negotiation. So that's kind of where we're at right now in in that case. Uh,
0: Serafina, thank you so much for your coverage of this issue. It's really interesting to see how it's all playing out at the moment. Let's talk again very soon.
1: Thanks, James.
0: Serafina Smith is an MLEX M&A reporter in New York City, and you don't have to be a mergers nerd to find Serafina's analysis of this issue riveting. And you can read it in its entirety at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for all of the very best of our reporting and analysis. You'll also notice a banner on the front page directing you to our most recent special report featuring an in-depth interview with Australia's top antitrust official, Gina Kaskotlieb. It's ready for you to download if you haven't done so already. As for this podcast, well, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. That way it will slide into your feed directly at the usual time every Friday. The MLEX podcast is produced and presented by me, James Paniki. It's uploaded with the kind assistance of the MLEX marketing team in London. And our executive producer is Richard Thompson. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you soon. Bye for now.